Hello, this is Kent Kersey, and this is the next episode of our Theology of Narnia podcast. And so this is where we're going to jump into the very first book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And we're going to look at, I think it's chapters one through eight that we're thinking of uh, looking at for this week. So the way that we're going to outline each of these episodes is a couple things. I'm wanting us to look at, first of all, one of the things I've, I've put in our syllabus was a fun fact, and that's in quotes. I'm not really sure necessarily that's the best way to phrase it. Some of the information about C.S. Lewis isn't always really fun necessarily, and so the, the idea is to for each of the groups, we'll be looking at a chapter from the Narnian, from Alan Jacobs. And again, I think this is probably the best Lewis biography, at least that I've read anyway, that's maybe a very subjective uh, point of view. But I, I think it's really good. And he actually spends quite a bit of time in this uh, biography looking at uh, certain parts of the line the which uh, of the narnian books because i mean the title itself the narnian sort of gives that away i guess and so in our episodes i'm wanting us to look at something in one of the chapters of jacob's book and then to dig into the section of the book that each of the groups has been assigned so today I'm going to be looking at just a, a few things in the introduction to the Narnian. There's so much in there and could spend probably a couple hours just talking about it, but I just want to highlight a couple things that I thought were very interesting in the introduction to the Narnian. Then we're going to dig into Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, chapters 1 through 8. And again, there's so much in there. I'm just going to skip across the surface of this because there's just way too much good stuff in here. But I want to point out a couple things that I think are interesting. So that's the major idea of how this is going to work, that first of all, there will be, again, what I'm calling a fun fact or just something from that chapter in the Narnian. And then looking at some of the specifics of what happens in the section that we're looking at, and then also maybe a little bit of what what it means. You know, there's a surface level of things, but then there's always a deeper meaning behind all of this. And so that's the plan for today. So as we look at the chapter, the introduction to the Narnian, there were so many interesting things. And, and just one of them that I thought was particularly interesting was that when Lewis is starting, when he's writing The Lion, the Witch, and Wardrobe, it's actually a, a very, very hard time for him. He is basically a caregiver at his house. And one of the major, and we're going to see this throughout the book, one of the most interesting relationships that he has is with this woman called Mrs. Moore, who lived at his house, in his house. And this goes back to in World War One when he had a very good friend, last name of Moore, and they realized in in the midst of battle, it was very likely that maybe both of them wouldn't make it or one of them wouldn't make it. And so they made a promise to each other that if one of them died, the survivor would care for the parent of the other. And so the idea was that if Lewis died, Moore 
would take care of his dad. And if if Moore died, then Lewis would take care of, of his mother. And that actually happens. His friend dies in battle in World War One, And Lewis goes through with his promise to take care of her. And actually, she moves into his house. There's speculation. We're going to see this. And this kind of gets weird. But later in the book, we're going to see that there's speculation people have made that the relationship between Lewis and Moore wasn't always platonic, that there may have been some physical intimacy there. And I'd, I'd heard this a little bit before I read Jacob's book, but Jacob's kind of makes it, and it sounds like he's like, yeah, they, they definitely were intimately close and just sort of a weird idea. But you can see, yeah, I mean, maybe that happened. I don't know. But at this time, when he's writing Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe, it's very hard because Mrs. Moore is becoming very, she's elderly, she's bedridden, basically. She has this dog that is also very old and is very high maintenance, and so he's trying to take care of them. His brother is also not well, and so he's trying to help his brother out, and there's, and work is just incredibly busy for him, and it is a time when he is just, it, it seems like he is so stressed out he can't move forward. And yet this is the time when he starts to write The Lion, the Witch, Wardrobe, which he's tried to write a number of times and never really worked. But this is the time he's doing it. And I, I think it's interesting. And one of the things that we see in Lion, Witch, Wardrobe is sort of a theme, maybe it's a sub-theme of escape, that the children are at the professor's house because they're escaping London, because London is in, it's, it's in the middle, it's in the war when the Germans are bombing London. And so they try to get all the kids out from the city where they can be safe, basically. And so this is, this is an issue of escape. Then we see that Lucy escapes into Narnia and the Narnians are trying to escape from the witch. And so th this is a theme in there. And so one almost wonders, is Lewis writing Lion, Witch, Wardrobe as his way of escaping just a really horrible time in his life when he is, he gets home and he's basically just caring for Mrs. Moore, for her sick, for her dog that's not doing well, for his brother. And so he gets home and is just constantly taking care of people, cleaning up vomit, you know, doing all of this stuff. And he's exhausted. And he has his work on top of that. And so you kind of wonder, is is this a book that he is writing to help him escape this reality? And it's interesting, too, another, and there's so many things, again, in this that it's just super interesting. He didn't really have a lot of experience writing for children. He, he had appreciated certain children's book, but he did not consider himself, and I think it says in there, an aficionado of children's books. And so he... He loved them, but he didn't really know, he didn't even know really how they worked, you know, so he wasn't an experienced author at all and in children's literature. So it's really interesting that it is children's literature that he is probably the most famous. And a lot of talk in there about Tolkien as well. We're going to see throughout the book that Tolkien was not a big fan of the Narnia Chronicles and he didn't even think it was, you know, he he thought it was not written well. He thought it was too much of an allegory, that there were too much sort of one-on-one -on -one 
relationships. And so when he writes Lord of the Rings, he's writing it as a deeper world that one gets into rather than just a simple analogy or a, a direct one-for-one -one correlation between what the Bible says and what this fantasy world is. And so Tolkien was not a big fan. And one of the things, and I'd mentioned this before, that I think Jacob's most interesting thing is, is his thesis that the thing about Lewis that made him Lewis, that made him more, I guess, Lewis than anything else. I'm not sure how to say that but was that his his willingness to be enchanted and we see this that he brings in the medieval cosmology we see this in in uh, michael ward's book that he's willing to look into those things and we're, we're going to see especially in the lion witch wardrobe that he thinks is perfectly logical that there could be a place called narnia and so the so i, I think the most interesting thing that I found in this introduction to Jacob's book was that, again, he is stressed out at this time. And the last thing you would think he would be doing is writing a novel. But for him, it seems to be a way of dealing with the stress around him, maybe escape his own escaping into, into Narnia. And also, it's also interesting that he, that he sorts of, he thinks that writing for any maybe children is maybe the way he writes writing for juveniles this is a quote from uh jacob's book is helpful for him and and the i guess a little bit he does know about it that he's going to work through this this quote is in there he says writing for ju juveniles certainly modified my habit of composition thus a it imposed a strict limit on vocabulary b excluded erotic love c cut down reflective and analytical passages, and D, led me to produce chapters of nearly equal lengths for convenience in reading aloud. But he added, all these restrictions did me great good, like writing in a strict meter. And so as he adopts this way of writing for children or for young people, I guess you could say, he figures out how to, to make this work. And it's interesting, and again, all the different books, all, all the books of the Chronicle Narnia are of the Narnian Chronicles are very different. It's it's not like they're exactly the same. Lion, the magician's nephew, is very different from the others. The silver chair is very different in the way he tells the stories, and the way he goes through them. So. All right, so the introduction to the Narnian is very interesting. And again, he was stressed out and he's trying to escape. And I think this is a big theme of what's happening here. Let's see, let's go ahead and just jump into chapters one through eight. And I'm just gonna point out some things that I, I think are, are happening in here. Again, chapter one, first couple chapters, we see that he, the children are escaping they are going to somewhere safe and they're trying to figure out what is happening in their life they get to this very strange house with this strange man and strange stuff going on in there and they are out play the, the children are playing we have peter susan uh, lucy and edmund and they're playing hide and seek and so she is trying to hide from them. And so she goes into this wardrobe 
And it's, I think it's on page seven where she talked, but says she makes sure not to shut it behind her because it's very foolish to shut oneself in. In other words, like you don't want to shut yourself into a wardrobe. And I think, I think Lewis is really making a bigger statement here. I think he is trying to say, or he, what I am hearing him say here is that this has to do with you can think of like belief systems. It's dangerous to lock yourself in a certain belief system because a certain, you know, certain thought patterns, certain pictures of reality might not be right. And if you lock yourself into that, you really can never get beyond it. And so we see Lucy actually does get into the wardrobe. She ends up in Narnia. She ends up visiting this this fawn named Mr. Tumnus. And Mr. Tumnus, it is interesting because even when you get to his house, there are these books, and one of them is, I think the, the title is something like, Is Man Myth? Which is sort of interesting, right? Because from a Narnian perspective, they may think of men and people the same way we think of fawns, right? I mean, we're like, oh, fawns don't exist at all. Or maybe they do. Is it a myth? Are they real? And so what Lewis is doing is he's sort of switching the whole thing and he's saying, you know, actually, from a different perspective, we might be hard to believe in. And one of the things that Lewis is doing here is you'll notice it's it's not like he's going that Narnia is totally different from where we are, because they know about sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. And even we see in this section, there is mentions of Salinas and Bacchus, who are, these are figures from our idea of Greek mythology. And so Narnia, in some sense, has a similar mythology. And we're going to see when we later learn about the White Witch that she is actually related to Adam, right? In the in ancient Hebrew mythology, where Lilith is this the first wife of Adam, and Lewis says that that's who the White Witch is. And so again, he's bringing these worlds of our world into Narnia so that there is a, a similarity, very, very close to there. And so he, she meets she meets Mr. Thomas, she enters Narnia, and we see that when she's coming back, she has experienced like a whole day, like a long time. And she's she keeps thinking, I need to go back, I need to go back, because she's experienced a long time in Narnia. But when she comes back, no time at all has changed. And this is something that we're going to see, especially in the next book, where they've, they've been gone or in, in the beginning of Prince Caspian. They've been gone not too long. It's maybe year, m months or whatever, not super long. But in Narnia, it's been thousand years. It's been a long time. And so the experience of time is totally different between the two. And what's, and I think what's super is she comes back and of course, nobody believes her about having gone to Narnia because it's like, there's just no such thing as Narnia. It just doesn't work that way. And after she's been back in the real world, and I think it's around page 27, it's interesting because she is starting to doubt herself. And she's wanting to go back to Narnia because she's not really sure that really happened. And one of the things happening here is that this is this is Lewis showing us something that he's told us before. In Mere Christianity, he talks about faith. And the bottom line of what he says faith is, is that faith is reminding yourself 
that what you formerly believed was true, regardless of some sort of emotional state that you're going through, that that is doubt. And so he says, you know, at one point, especially if you think about Christianity, it made perfect sense to you that, yes, there was this person named Jesus. He, he died. He resurrected. He died for my sins. And it seems very, very real. As time goes on and you, you maybe hang around with Christians less and less, and you start doubting about Christianity itself. And what Lewis says is that faith is sort of telling your emotions where to get off, right? It's like, all right, there was a time when I believed this for a good reason at the time, but now my emotional state is changing, and it doesn't seem like this is a good idea to believe this anymore. I don't know. And what, and this is what Lucy's experienced. She's, she, it seemed very real when she was in Narnia and eating with Mr. Tominus. That seemed very real. But she comes back and it's like, yeah, that is kind of crazy that there would be this place called Narnia. And so it, so it was perfectly logical for her to believe in Narnia because she had experienced it. But her emotions, later she feels shame, she feels regret that she even said anything about it. She, all of these negative emotions are starting to make her question what she once held on just logic, basically. So, it, so I, I, and there's a few of these places we're going to see in these chapters where this is playing out what Lewis has previously written, especially like in Mere Christianity. So we see later, I think we're in the end of chapter three, going into four, where Edmund ends up in Narnia with her. He's the one that really doubted it, or he thought she was crazy. And so he ends up in Narnia, they end up getting separated, and he, he is meeting the White Witch, doesn't really know who she is at the time. And she gives him Turkish delight. I don't know if you've ever had Turkish delight, but I, I think it's kind of disgusting. I, I've had it before, and the stuff I had anyway was not great. But I guess he likes it, and he's he's eating it, and he just wants more and more and more of it. And we see that he's he's craving it. And there are some of the deadly sins going on here. I mean, he's gluttonous. We see pride coming up. And his interaction with the White Witch just builds these things. It, it builds his gluttony. It builds his pride. It builds his dishonesty. Like he is willing to actually lie to his siblings about what is going on here. And so he's being driven by his passions and not logic. And this is a this is similar to to what we're going to see, especially playing out a little bit later, is that his desire to lord it over his brother and sisters, that he should be better, that this is what drives him to conspire with the White Witch, that yes, maybe I will, I, I will go ahead and turn in my brother and my sisters because I will get to be king. So in chapter five, they, they come back. Edmund is, he does this horrible thing where he will not admit that he actually went to Narnia. And he is saying that, no, Lucy just made it up. I was just pretending to go along with it. And he really lies and says that Lucy was just making it up. And then in this chapter, again, I think this is so interesting what's happening here because Peter and Susan aren't sure what to do because they are becoming more and more convinced that there's something wrong with Lucy because she is claiming that she has had this experience in this magical place called Narnia. They're not sure what to do. 
they end up going to the professor of the, the guy who lives in the house. And we know if you've read The Magician's Nephew or when we get to that, you'll know who the professor is. And he has definitely had experiences in Narnia before. And that's the reason the, the wardrobe is magic because of something that's happened in earlier in, in his life, in the professor's life. And so Peter and Susan come to him because he's an adult and he's going to help them. And he's, they expect him to, to reprimand Lucy or something and say, yeah, she's crazy. But he, he completely changes how they think. And, and he kind of flips the script on them and they are saying something's wrong with Lucy because she is saying that she's been to Narnia. And he asks this question, he says, well, how do you know that she hasn't? So he's, I mean, it's just, Peter thinks it's just obvious that she hasn't been to Narnia because there's no such place as Narnia. But the professor is saying, well, how do you know? And this is, this is, he's being philosophical and this is a philosophical area of epistemology, which asks, how do you know anything? And of course, we could get way too philosophical with this and people would lose interest really fast, but he is challenging, the professor challenging Peter, saying, okay, you, you don't think Lucy has been to this place of Narnia, but how do you know? Like, what is your evidence that she hasn't? And this will cause Peter and Susan both to kind of question, it's like, well, I don't, I don't know how we, we, we know that she hasn't, but it's just obvious because it's crazy. The place can't exist. And the professor starts using logic and he starts asking him, okay, let's just sort of set aside this, the craziness of Narnia for a while and think about the difference between Edmund and Lucy. And he says, one of the things, think about your experience. Who is of the two, who Edmund or Lucy, which of these is most reliable? Or who's most liable to to lie, maybe? And they think it's like, well, actually, I mean, that's a strange thing because Edmund is not, he's not truthful. He's always lying about stuff. And Lucy is always telling the truth. And so he's, so the, so the professor's basically saying, well, okay, like, let's set ag again your presuppositions that Narnia can't exist. And let's just look at logic. You have Edmund, you have Lucy. Who is the most truthful? Well, Lucy, I guess okay, maybe she's telling the truth. Then they, that leads them to say, well, maybe she's not lying. Maybe there's something wrong mentally with her. Maybe she actually thinks that this place called Narnia exists. She's not really lying. She's just kind of nuts, right? Because she thinks that this is true. And then the professor, this leads the professor to say, well, actually all you have to do is just look at Lucy and you realize she's she is the most sane person of, of you four, right? She is, she's the one that is not nuts. She is, she's very sane. And so they're thinking, wow, okay, well, okay, she, so it's, not, so logically, she probably isn't lying. Also, logically, she doesn't seem to be crazy. And this is another area where, if you've read Mere Christianity, this is one of the major sort of apologetic points that C.S. Lewis is making about Jesus. And that is Jesus claimed a lot of really outrageous things. One of the things that he claimed was that he was able to forgive sins, which is something only God can do. And so he's saying, okay, so why would this man, 
Jesus make these claims. And this is the super famous three-part, again, apologetic, I guess we could say, of, of Jesus. And what Lewis is saying in there is that when Jesus claims these things, three there are three possibilities. One, he's lying. He, he really can't forgive sins. He's just lying about it. Or two, he's he's a lunatic. He thinks he can. I mean, there's a lot of people who think they're Jesus. There are people who say that they're Napoleon. There, there are people who have these identities that they think they have when they really don't. And they claim things all the time. It's because there there's some mental issues going on. So it's like, well, maybe Jesus was lying about it, or maybe he was a lunatic, right? That that he was just mentally unstable. Well, that's but that's not really true because when you look at him in the especially the gospels, he's the most sane person ever. He's the most brilliant teacher. So he's not he's not a, insane. And so what Lewis is saying, he's he's either a liar when he says this, he's a lunatic, or the third L with a capital L would be Lord. So he's lying, he is crazy, or he's actually right about what he claimed. And so what's super interesting, he'd made that point very explicit in Mere Christianity that he'd written what a generation before, Lionwitch of Wardrobe. But this is another instance where we see him in Mere Christianity, he's very explicit about this point, but he's showing it in this story about Lucy, and he's using the same logic. It's like, well, Lucy is not lying. She's she's not crazy. So the professor sort of led them to this, this idea that maybe she's telling the truth. Maybe there is this thing. And what Lewis, again, what he's trying to do is he's trying to open our eyes to more than just what is in front of us. We have these five senses. And this is, again, part of this idea of materialism that Lewis was not a big fan of materialism or naturalism, that your that our five senses are are sensing things and that it's only things that our, our five senses can can pick up that really do exist because there are forces beyond that. There are, if you think about it, there's this force out there of magnetism where you, we can see that, we can see it happening, but there's nothing internally in our five senses that can sense the the magnetism, right? So there's a force out there beyond our five senses. And so again, one of the things Lewis wants to do is he wants to tell them or open their eyes to saying, look, just because you have an experience doesn't mean this is not true. And you know, they're like, what can we do about it? I love what the professor says. Well, just, just mind your own business. Let her live her world. Don't worry about it. And We'll see what's happening. So in, in chapter six, we see that they all end up going back to the back to Narnia, all four of the children. They find out that Mr. Tumnus is in trouble. He's been taken by the White Witch. And this is this is gonna be a lot of trouble because we find out that the White Witch is in fact, and this is kind of chapter seven and eight as well, is that the White Witch takes people or creatures, whatever they are, and turns them into stone. And this is another, I'm just gonna put this out here, this is another super interesting analogy or crossing of mere Christianity, because mere Christianity, when when Lewis is talking about when people become about salvation, basically, he says there's two different kinds of life. One is bios, and that's just natural life. And the other is zoe, Z-O-E, these are Greek words for life. And this is like the spiritual life. And he makes this point that when that basically spiritual renewal or regeneration by the Holy Spirit is like a 
is bios turning into zoe and he uses analogy it's like a statue becoming a real person and so again i think it's interesting that these are ideas that he had again what 10 15 years maybe before i'm trying to figure out what the right time frame is but it was maybe 10 20 i'm not really sure exactly what the numbers are there i have to look it up but he'd written these things explicitly but then in mere christian or in language order we see these actually popping up in these stories so we're going to see that at this point this the the children are confronted with this reality the white witch has made it winter never christmas mr tumnus is in trouble the white witch is about to unleash all her fury on all of narnia and then they hear about Aslan, and this is just, I think this is one of the coolest things, is that when the children hear about Aslan, it's not some objective thing that happens to it. It's very subjective because it depends on who you are. We know that Edmund hears about Aslan and just this horror and dread come into him, and the other children feel different things. But Lucy, on the other spectrum, when she hears that name Aslan, it's comfort. It's like, oh, you're in holiday, you're... You, you're eating your favorite snack. You're, you're, everything's wonderful. And when she hears this, she is very comforted. And so Aslan, we're going to see again, we, we find out that Aslan is this lion. They're not even sure, like, is he a band? Oh, it's a lion. Okay. And then there's probably one of the most famous things in there is that they say, well, lion, that's kind of scary. He's, is he safe? And of course, Mr. Beaver says he's he's not safe, but he is good. And so we're introduced to, at this idea about Aslan is going to be coming. There's going to be this reckoning between the witch and Aslan. And I didn't, on, on this one, I didn't really get into much of Michael Ward's. We'll kind of unfold it next time when we look at the end of it. But we see that this... This book, according to Ward, is the Jupiter. Uh, it's Jupiter, right? Yeah, that that this one represents, and it is this idea of, of joviality, of of just joyfulness. And this isn't very joyful yet, but we're going to see that it does become pretty amazing in a while. So this adventure is about to start, and they're pulled into it. They really don't have a choice at this point. They are going to have to join to try and save Mr. Tumnus, try and save their brother, figure out what's going on. And so next time we will jump into chapter nine and look at the rest of the book. Thank you for listening and enjoy the rest of the book. Thanks.